It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Black British Lives Matter, the podcast. I'm Lenny Henry. And I'm Marcus Ryder. This is the podcast where we explore why and how Black British Lives Matter, acknowledging and dealing with the racism we face, but wanted to go far deeper than that, exploring what it means to be black and British, our culture, our joy, and our pain. Marcus, could you tell us what we have in store today, please? Well, today, Lenny, we are looking at Black British food matters. We're looking at what food says about Black British culture and identity. Is there such a thing as a Black British cuisine? Is there racism in the food industry? And what on earth does decolonizing food mean? A new concept for me. We will also be trying to finally answer the vexed questions of whether Ghanaian jollof is better than Nigerian, and if Trini roti is the perfect carnival food, or whether it should be Jamaican jerk. You can't even argue about that, you know. And to guide us through the issue of Black British Food Matters, we have two amazing guests. First, we have Zoe Ajonia, a writer and chef from South East London. She's the founder of the pioneering contemporary West African food business, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, which has been running its famous supper clubs and pop-up residences for over 10 years. She's the founder, the co-founder of Black Book, a platform for promoting diversity in the global food industry and hospitality, and is a leading light in the current debate around decolonizing food. More on that term later. We also have Melissa Thompson, an award-winning food and recipe writer who regularly writes for BBC Food, The Guardian, Waitrose Weekend, Waitrose Magazine, and many others. In June 2020, following the murder of George Floyd, she wrote a seminal paper called Black Erasure in the British Food Industry, which for many people literally changed the conversation around racism, black British identity, and food. Welcome to you both. Hi. Thank you very much. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, Melissa, I want to start with you. And this might be a really basic question, but tell me this, Melissa. Why is food so important to black British identity and culture? I think food is is important to all cultures because it tells a story um, and it involves so many different aspects. I mean, first of all, everyone has to eat for a start. So food ends up, end up, ends up being a really good vehicle for, for discussions about lots of different things. And I think for, um, for, for diaspora, when you're not in the, the country of, um, say your, your birth or of, of, you know, your, your parents' birth, then food is such a tangible, evocative connection to, to a place where you may never have visited. So for me, uh, my dad's Jamaican, my mum's Maltese, and I never went to Jamaica until I was in my in my th- early 30s, I think, or late 20s. And 
Um, but then my dad cooking, um, cooking, you know, sort of Akin saltfish, uh, my mum rolling dumpling. Um, it was, it was a connection to the island and, you know, I think when you're a kid and you you like with your with your adult with your grown ups, your your parents, you might ask them questions about different things. Um, you know how they got together and all these sorts of things. And and for me, a, a story that I'd always ask my dad to repeat is is mango about mango trees back in Jamaica, and he'd tell me about climbing them and and eating mango or eating guava until he would um you know fall asleep and fall out of the tree. And um and yeah. and because for me growing up in Weymouth, which was which is and was even more so a very kind of White area and down in South Dorset, um, where we had to come to we, ha- we had to come to London to get mangoes and we'd stock up on mango juice and all this, you know, like, like your kind of blue, your blue Rubicon, like the, the boot would be like packed with it. And um, and so for me, like my dad feasting on mangoes until he could like bear no more and would just like fall into this mango and juice slumber was just, oh my gosh, like it was just it was just the dream for me. And so I think it's about you know the reason it's so important. It's about connection. It's about memories and things like that. Thank you for that, Melissa. Zoe, why is food so important to you when it comes to identity? Why is food so important to me when it comes to identity? Well, I mean, I, like Melissa, have immigrant parents to the UK. So uh-huh. Where are your parents from? My mum's Irish. My dad is Ghanaian. So you're um, Irish. Grarish. Grarish. Yeah, well, similarly, look, from a really young age, I became aware from a really young age how important food was to my parents in terms of connecting them from home, not just from like a nostalgia thing, but almost as a means of like safety, like that kind of comfort, like being an immigrant in the UK from those two places in the 60s and 70s meant it was difficult, right? And they were young. Mm. And they were, you know, didn't finish their education. So they had a lot going against them. And for me, watching my parents interact with food from their homes really, really quickly became a lens through which I could see they were traveling back to those places. And because I didn't have um, a very strong community of Ghanaian family around me in the UK, uh-huh. um, that food that my dad brought home, his, that kenke, the shito, um, those smoked and dried fishes, all of that food became my touchstone for the culture from which I I couldn't get close to for economic reasons or for whatever the reasons where I couldn't fly back to Ghana. But that food rooted me in my culture. And that's what it does for hundreds of thousands of migrants and immigrants around the world all the time, right? And then it becomes this very useful language to share who you are with other people when it comes to, when we're talking about, you know, being othered and all of these, the ways in which immigrant communities are made to feel less than historically and traditionally the Uh food can be this really easy um mechanism vehicle tool to have a conversation where people can understand what's more in common between them than is different that's a really good answer i don't know about you but my parents actually my mom curated the the dishes that we would eat every single day and it wasn't the fact that there was variety it was just the regularity of the food and the flavors that kept coming into the house on. So on Monday, it was, um, we had it, we, Saturday, it was Saturday soup. Sunday, it was like a big Sunday roast with brown rice and peas and hard food. Monday, it was rice and peas and something else. Tuesday, and then when we ran out of money by Wednesday, it was pilchards. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pilchards. It was always pilchards and white rice on a, 
<laughs> on a Thursday, uh, on a Wednesday. Then on Thursday, it was like corned beef and white rice. And then I, Friday, there was money. So we'd get sent out for fish and chips. And then Saturday, it was Saturday soup again. But it was the, it was the regularity. Exactly. Um, and the familiarity that we knew she was going to cook. And she was brilliant. She could cook this food in her sleep. And she often did. Um, <laughs> And, and I, I kind of, I absolutely understand what you're both saying about this idea of food being a template and a touchstone. It really is. And it really makes you, it really makes you, um, feel safe and at home and in the bosom of your family. And when you're all together, it's wonderful. You don't even have to talk. You just have to eat and make noises. And people go, yes, you see. It's preferred you don't talk. <laughs> yeah. So, so your father's gone there and your mother's Irish. Can you pick out one or two dishes? that are important to you and how they help define your identity. Yeah. Well, you just mentioned one of them, actually, corned beef stew, corned beef and rice, because I was a latchkey kid, uh-huh. as most people in their 40s probably were. And so that was one of the first things I learned to make. Well, so one of the first things I watched my dad burn, and that was the class. One thousand dishes. Um, but yeah, because it's so simple, but yet, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a handful of ingredients, onions, tomatoes, a little bit of heat, corned beef, some boiled eggs, white rice, you know, and you can whip that up. You can, like, mm. I was like seven, eight, coming home from school making that, you know. It's Your like, parents were irresponsible. <laughs> what are you cooking when you were seven, eight years old? Move <laughs> away from the oven. You are born out your hand. And, um, you know, and there's... There's, it's such a cheap, economical meal. We just posted it on my Instagram account for Ghana Kitchen this morning, actually, because it's such a delicious, easy meal. But people forget that that's what they had in their childhood. And I put yeah. that in my cookbook, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. And I had so many of all the recipes in that book. People reached out on the strength of that corned beef stew because they're like, oh, my God, I used to eat this when I was a kid. That's <laughs> extraordinary. And what's um, the other dish? And the other one is going to be ground nut soup because basically peanut butter stew this gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous one pot of sweet, spicy, pequon. It's like the essence of West Africa, mm. whether you're Senegalese, Nigerian, Ghanaian, from Mali, all of us have a, a reference to a groundnut stew or groundnut soup. And it's the, So what's in it? Describe oh, what's in it. So it's basically something I call a chale sauce, which is a blend of tomatoes, onions, scotch bonnet, um, a little bit of garlic, loads of ginger. Then, you know, you, if you're making a meat version, you kind of like stew the meat in with the tomatoes, yeah. some curry, some chili, and then basically add a jar of peanut butter, Lenny. And a what jar? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking none of your cheap rubbish. I've got some good quality, no oh extra gosh. or sugar. Organic if you can. And it's the most insanely beautiful dish in the world. And that is the dish that launched the brand Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. Um, mm went on to become a signature dish but that's what i cooked outside my front door and that's you what you inject with insulin before you eat that <laughs> it's like when you eat it i swear down and everybody agrees it's basically like you've just been hugged by god it's like there's a big blanket of love getting wrapped around you melissa what about you can you pick out a few a couple of dishes that define who you are and why yeah, sure. I mean, just to say, I can I can concur. Um, Zoe's um, yeah, because Zoe's groundnut soup is is pretty good. I had it in um in when she was in Brixton. It's it's beautiful. And I, I think for me, I mean, like talking about my um my my, I've got so many dishes. And but looking sort of towards my more Jamaican side, um, then I think I think curry chicken, um, because 
it was the only dish that my grandma and I, I, I say that she taught me to make it and I think I don't want to over romanticize this like I was in her kitchen and she lived in Darlington my, my grandparents lived in Darlington we lived in Weymouth and so to get there was this horrible six-hour drive that when you're a kid it just feels like forever and I think even my parents probably felt like forever too with us two in the back in the back kind of moaning all the time and then we'd get there and there'd always be a pot of curry chicken and rice and peas always made with um kidney beans never um never gunga peas and um and it was so good I, I can't express how tasty her curry chicken was we talked today in the intro about the idea of decolonization of food that's a term that I hadn't heard before and I'm sure lots of listeners won't have heard of of decolonization of food. What, what's decolonization of food? It's it's removing the kind of colonial aspects, like through the, the colonial lens through which we view food. And for, I mean, for me, um, so decolonizing food is um, when we did the shoot for my book, for instance, and I have a coleslaw um, recipe in the book and um, me and my friend Melek, who was um, part of the team making the food. And we we're talking about how we're like... We are making matchsticks with the vegetables. We're not juliening our vegetables. We are basically we're cutting them into matchsticks. And there's and and Zoe touched on it. You know, talking about like escoffier, and and the way that people assume like like say French food to be the best and kind of European food. Again, I, I mentioned about how people say about the Mediterranean diet is the, is the healthiest in the world. Like what? Where where does that come from? It's, it is a healthy cuisine. It has unhealthy elements, like every cuisine. But I guess it's about um, this hierarchy, right? Where different cuisines. Um, come from and I think um, it's just about kind of removing this assumption that food cooked by white people that food from white cultures is better than food cooked by black people um, and you know and, and obviously white and black people cook food from all around the world but but foods that kind of originate within those different cultures and um, and it's really kind of um, endemic I mean there's been kind of attempts to try to rectify it for a, for a, a, like a long time especially over the last couple of years but there, it's so it's so ingrained i collect jamaican cookbooks and um there, there are there there's quite a lot of old ones um there's of course the classic rustily cookbook and there are some newer ones but there are very few that are presented in a way like a mary berry which is kind of a prime time tv or a paul hollywood um, there are very few that are presented like Ottolenghi or um, Gordon Ramsay or Jamie Oliver in a kind of very high-end, fine-dining way. And I do wonder if there's been this kind of weird... I, I, when I watch MasterChef and programmes like that, where they appropriate every single culture and go, we're doing this in a Japanese style or we're doing this in an African, we're making a jollof this or we're making a kind of a... Uh, stir fry that i i do wonder where caribbean and african cuisine sits in terms of fine dining because you just don't see it on primetime television and in primetime publishing and i think that's a huge lack um i think um but when i mean with with you know sort of you're talking about appropriation and things and you have marco pierre white who did jamaican jamaican chicken um and the only ingredient in that was three stock cubes, literally the st- uh, three stock cubes. And he had the the audacity to say that when he goes to Jamaica, this is what people cook for him. And um, and it made me laugh because obviously that if that was the case. I think he'd get he'd get sort of hounded out, right? And um, 
And, and I think actually what's interesting, Lenny, is when you're talking about fine dining, um, I think I was talking to another friend who runs a restaurant in Brixton, Shishuru, um, a Nigerian restaurant. And, and she was saying that sometimes like black people, and this is something I hear, I hear a lot, that black people can almost be our own worst enemy when it comes to supporting food places, restaurants. And when you have, I think the problem isn't so much high end, um, because you've got, you know, you've got Ikoyi, you've got a cocoa, um, but it's more mid range. Um, restaurants um, and representation because I think it's it's it, there's an ex, there's an expectation with with black food that it should be cheap. It's about value, right? I'm saying I'm, this is a conversation about value, and it's one that I've been having for like over twelve years in the UK. It's like the problem is, it's like the white gaze has teaches us, right, as food consumers, what is valuable and what isn't valuable. Over time, Escoffier. And fine dining and Michelin have presented to the world a version of what is good and valuable and important. And because you know, there's lots of reasons why, but colonization is one of them, right? Africans traditionally haven't had careers in the culinary arts because we were too busy fighting. We were eating to survive, essentially, right? There wasn't time to play around in the gastronomical arts. Over that time, there's not been any value attributed to that as a career, as a profession. It's something that you, your mum or your grandmother feeds you at home or your dad if you're lucky, right? Therefore, it hasn't translated into the high street as being valuable. So is there a correlation between how much people respect a culture and how much they respect the cuisine? Yes. Yeah, because I think it's where it's like if I say to you, maybe not you, Marcus, but if I say to you, to you know, like to to, to if I said to someone else, right, someone like okay, a white person, that I'm going to go out for a fancy dinner, what what kind of cuisine are they going to think that I'm talking about, right? Like, you could even ask me, and I'd say French. Yeah, okay. you, you, can, you can ask me. I'll, I'll be honest. Um, yeah, so French, right, or kind of like you know, maybe I push like modern British, whatever that means, and then it's like, oh, you know, I fancy like I fancy like I, I want. I'm looking for a bit of comfort for food. People then might think, oh, what you're going to go and get is like some fried chicken or something, or kind of like not to be disparaging about fried chicken because it holds a very special place in my in my heart. Fried chicken's dope. Oh god, it's it's just the best. It's the best. It's that thing of uh, our our food was a. We are a the traditional image of black people from a certain time period was of serving food to white people. The the thing of slavery and, you know, our forefathers serving this food. How interesting that the most racist people in the universe were eating very, very black food, you know, in the South, in, in America. They were eating, you know, pigtail, oxfoot, cowfoot, um, tripe, gizzards, innards, chicken neck they were eating very true this was food they threw away and that our forefathers made taste nice and then they wanted it back yeah so and now black people can't afford oxtail because it's been it's been gentrified oh yeah you can't afford chicken back now in jamaica it's too expensive so this the sense of um this sense of how food is appraised and evaluated in terms of fine dining is 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 kind of rubbish to say the least it's and it's our problem, I think. I think we have to kind of get used to this idea that our food is attractive and tempting and alluring. When I go to the Pink Teacup in New York, um, I don't know if it's still open, but it's always full. It's soul food. It's grits. It's huge pork chops. It's everything smothered in gravy, and it's the most delicious food. Far too much of it, but it's the most delicious food you've ever had. But this is very much down home southern soul food, and it's packed. 
with white people. There will only be like two or three black people in there, but it's packed with white people. And I think we could do the same here. You know, Rusty Lee's restaurant, when it was open in Birmingham, whenever I went, it was always full. And I don't know why she didn't keep going with it. I think it was, I, I don't know what it is for us. I think there's, <sighs> Friday, Saturday is a good night. It's good. Sunday lunchtime is good. But the early part of the week is difficult. And I, it's not like it's not like French or Italian posh food. It's kind of, people want to eat our food on a Friday night or a Saturday night. But it's, I'm, I'm frustrated by the fine dining thing because I know we've got it in us. When I go to the Caribbean or go to America and I eat food that is black-centered or third world-centered, I do get a proper sense that this could be something that everybody could eat and enjoy, not just on a kind of a, Oh, Friday, I'll have a bit of street food. Not just that kind of food, but proper yeah, nicely meals. presented food. And it's often it's often when you watch MasterChef, the presentation that gets us in trouble. But that, that that's really interesting. Me. I don't know if, you, if you're aware of the hashtag on social media of hashtag um, ugly, you know, this ugly delicious, right? Where people talk about ugly. <laughs> and so like things like, things like um, curry, people say is ugly del- delicious, or maybe like oxtail and stuff like that. And I can't, I can't, I can't get into it because I'm like, to me, if I look at a plate of like, oxtail, then that's not ugly delicious. It's just pure delicious. It's beautiful because yeah. I know how it's going to taste. And it's about association, you know, and it's just like, it's, 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 it's crazy. Think about the Frenchies. They disguise, they disguise things, uh, you know, cochon or saucisson. They disguise what something is. Cause if you say cow foot, when we say cow foot, we go, all the kids go, cow foot. But you know, when you, when you gussy it up in French or Italian, it sounds nicer. People want to, people sit on a menu and go, Oh, that looks nice. Yeah. What is it? Um, what, <laughs> I'm, to... <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about, so in the recording studio, we've only given you water and coffee. Now, here's a confession, right? Lenny and I were going, were thinking, when we're thinking about names for this podcast, we were going to call it Saturday Soup Conversations because yes. people just talk. Yeah, I know you lost the, the argument, Lenny, right? But Saturday Soup is a great name. But people talk more over, over food. Do you think that we should be serving everybody food in these, in these podcasts? And do you think Saturday Soup Conversations would have been a better title to go with? Well, if, if you start serving food for a start, I hope you get me back. <laughs> What about what about if we um, if we if we asked if we bought if we both cook something simple and brought it in, and then we asked you to bring in something, and we tasted each other's food and talked about it, would that be a nice thing to do? I think that'd be an amazing thing to do. Like I, I think food is so it's so evocative and it's so it like it, it just well I, I think actually over food I think food only enables good conversation if the food's good because if the food's bad then I think you end up talking about how bad the food is and it can be still be quite like a unifying experience but I think if I've been to a restaurant and the food's been bad it's like oh my god this is really bad and it's, sometimes it's quite a funny conversation but yeah I think I think Saturday soup is a really good conversation because if you know what Saturday soup is then you're yeah, like explain, explain to us because some obviously Lenny and I no Saturday soup, but explain to everybody what Saturday soup is. Well, Saturday soup is is the tradition um, in Jamaica where you have soup on a Saturday. I mean, actually, you have soup in Jamaica any day of the week because wherever you go, there's always a pot of of soup going. It's so good. It's so good. And uh, like red pea soup, um, chicken foot, uh, like all of it. And that manish water... Um, yeah. Oh, and um, I don't need manish water. 
it's like it's, it's, a, it's there's um there's a place in Brixton I go to. It's, it's like between Brixton and Herne Hill, Maureen Maureen's Kitchen, and she cook like her yard is like it, it looks like you could be in Jamaica apart from the weather. She's got like her her jerk drums. She's got her her coal burners like made from the inner you know the inner of a of a of a car wheel and um and 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 she doesn't really have much of an online follower uh, presence. And her phone, like she just takes orders by phone, never writes anything down. And she's like, hello. And um, it's like, Maureen, what's the soup today? And it's like, it's chicken foot, chicken foot. Like, you got managed water now, it's Saturday. That's all everyone wants to know, what soup is cooking. And you never know. And it's the same in Jamaica. You go, you see the massive pot, like, what's the soup today? And it's, um, yeah, it's just like a Saturday soup. Soup in Jamaica is a, is a tradition. It's a beautiful tradition. So those conversations over food, right? if you remember two Christmases ago, um, there was the Sainsbury's advert that caused massive controversy because it was a black family. Do you remember this? It was a black family eating and people and all these racists seems to get very upset about having an all black. But I think the fact that they were eating food was something, was also seminal, was was an important factor in that advert. What, because they weren't dancing? Or, I don't, well, or, or it the, the, role, or the role that food plays <laughs> in bringing black people together and bringing people together, you know? So I just think that, it was interesting that this advert that showed a a black community, a uh, completely black presence, was over food. But isn't that crazy that we have to think that that's um, that that's that we have to think that's ex- like an extraordinary thing, like an advert from a supermarket showing a family. If that was a white family, we wouldn't think twice about it. If it was a mixed race family, we wouldn't think twice about it. But the fact that it's a it was a it's a it's a black family, it's um, it's it's something so ordinary and mundane. And yet it has to be controversial. Representation does matter. And you're right, you can't be what you can't see. And I think a lot of us had that same experience growing up where there was no representation of who we, either who we are or who we could become, right? Um, and those are very limiting circumstances. But also for the the backlash of that campaign, it's it's it speaks volumes about the UK's relationship with racism because it's a moment where Middle England are like there's black people all over my TV (laughs) how did this happen (laughs) do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. not realizing that they have black people in their communities like they have black people their neighbors are black people that you know we are doing exactly the same things as they are but it's not being shown anywhere, and by anywhere I mean mainstream broadcast media, therefore, and that's part of the othering, right? That is why we have to have representation, that is why we have to be seen, ironically, to be normal, to normalise us. Mm-hmm. That's what the less. That's how we become less othered through the white gaze, but, you know, I'm glad to see in the UK, finally, BET is launched in the, in the UK, and I'm sure that's going to see... Um, a huge groundswell in the number of black programming, black productions, black food, black theatre, black fashion, black film, like black comedy. I think we're going to see a real big explosion of blackness across UK TV um, in in a, in a deserved way because, you know, the BBC and other places have incrementally been, you know, they've pulled Ainsley back out, they've pulled certain people back out, but there's still so much black talent that isn't getting the space and it's not going to because people have been in their positions for so long and they're not going to give up tenure. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So we need new spaces. So I'm happy to see that BET and other initiatives like that are coming to the UK. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My brother Paul learned how to cook by watching my mum cook. And she did not say, you, you do this, you do that. She just showed him what to do. And even now, Paul is a wonderful cook because he genuinely doesn't have to. I mean, we do, we, 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 we like recipes. We do look at recipes and we do follow them. Um, but... If you if you're cooking a Raymond Blanc dish and you and you miss out the part that says reduce by two thirds, then you're left with this slop, right, with some vegetables floating around in it. But if you'd watched your mum or your grand cooking it, you wouldn't forget the reducing because you'd have seen a boil the boil the sauce until it was sticky in the bottom, wouldn't you? You'd have seen that, so you'd know that was part of the process. But when you're in, reading a book. You, it's easy, if you, especially if you're slightly dyslexic like me, you can easily miss out little sections and go, why is it not doing, why doesn't it taste nice yet? There's always that bit of the recipe that makes me laugh. Now, I wasn't fortunate to meet my gran, but I did, I did watch my mum cook a bit, and, but my brother Paul watched my mum a lot, and he just learned to, cook, learned to cook by osmosis, as it were. He just watched her and followed what she did, and he still cooks like that. I mean, this is this is th- something that when we talk about sort of you know sort of a di- diasporic communities, and I think whether from the Caribbean, from Africa, from from South Asia, from from Eastern South Asia, is is trying to kind of codify recipes, right, um, and trying to write things down. And Lenny, you you spoke about it with your mum, trying to like pick up. Uh, recipes from her and you'd be like well but how much though and she'd be like oh just a little bit you know and my grandma was like that and she was just like you just add like, how much curry powder this much and it was never kind of quantified and actually but I was too young to kind of think well I need to know that and it was it's, it's like cooking from the heart you know and it's just you know when it's you know when it's enough but why won't our grandparents tell us what exactly what to put in 
It's like there's a, it's like they've got a secret. They don't want yeah, to share it with the children. I don't think, it, I think for some, I was talking to a friend about this the other day and she was saying that it's almost like, I don't know whether it's because then we might stop going home or we might start going, stop going to our grandparents if, if we can cook it ourselves. But then I think, I mean, with my grandmother, she wasn't ah, being, like, I, I watched that's her. really clever. If I tell you what, if I tell you what's it, if I tell you exactly, exactly what's it, exactly, you won't come back exactly. again. You'll just be cooking it by yourself at home. But I think my grandmother, it wasn't kind of any cloaks and daggers. It was just like, it's, it's this much. See, it's two I, spoonfuls. I, th- I think that that actually speaks to a fundamental difference in, in culture. Absolutely. I think there's a very European idea of concept that you have recipes and the recipes are exact, of which you have a spoonful, one teaspoon of this, half a teaspoon of that. Whereas, there are other cultures, including um, African and Caribbean cultures, I think, where it is not um, uh, recipes are not conveyed in the same way. Yeah, you know, I suspect. Yeah, but uh, well, so, completely, and I think this is part of the thing about about um, that. That's why a lot of recipes, you know, I think in, in African and Caribbean communities have been passed down orally because actually, when you're talking about a spoonful of curry powder, it depends what curry powder you're using, and everything is going to have different impacts. So it's not just having this prescriptive recipe. But cooking with your eyes and your and your nose and you know even when something's marinating, it's like you kind of smell it. Does that smell smell right? And there there are so many dishes that I I don't I never measure what goes into it, but I know when it smells right. Are Black Britons losing our cultural diversity? The more immersed in British culture we get, are we slightly foregoing our thing? Because our thing is considerable. Our food, our stash and our swag, our style, it's considerable. When we decide we're going to cook our food, it's always good and people love it, even if we cook it badly. But the more, uh, just, just, just as a little story, I went to my sister's house recently and all the little children were there. It was great. All my nieces and nephews and the grandchildren were there. And there was a moment when we had to eat and Bev had cooked Saturday soup and rice and there was some fish, right? Delicious. So all the all of the people my age, 50s, 60s, started to serve themselves with the food. Guess what the mums, the children, ordered for their children in that space? Deliveroo. So what happened was, as the grown-ups started to eat chicken and rice and fish and whatever from Bev's kitchen, Deliveroo came and they bought pizza and chicken and chips and McDonald's. And the little children ate that. And when I was a kid... We would have all eaten the same thing. But when I said to my, my niece, why the, why have you ordered, why have you ordered that? She said, oh, they won't eat, they won't eat Nan's food. And I thought that was, I, I, that was a, a chill was in my body when I heard that. They won't eat what Nan cooks. They don't like that food. I was going to say it comes back to value again, right? Because, you know, if you have this conversation with African Americans, in fact, I was just at MOFAD last week listening to a conversation on this topic with, uh, Michael Twitty and Adrian Niscombe and Matthew Raceford, and they're talking about you know communal hands in the African American community since slavery were you know we black people were the cooks right black people created the food of modern America at the end and um, but there's inherent value in that African um, African American culture in in passing down foodways to younger generations mm. like it's inherent in the culture in the south and i think that there is an absence perhaps of that like the, the black british experience is really different to the black american experience the african-american experience for lots of reasons we don't have time to delve into right now but i do think there is a thing where we are second third generation 
ex-Commonwealth coming off the boat, so to speak, to this country, but having a different relationship with the coloniser and a real desire to assimilate beyond what anybody else would conceive reasonable. Um, and in doing so, in that assimilation, things like food culture does go by the wayside. I mean, I don't think there's many African families where that would be happening, honestly, still today. Mm. But I get the point that as we... And also, you know, we have to be careful in making ourselves accessible, right? And I do that with air quotes around it. And I've had this complication as a, as a cook myself, you know, trying to translate somewhat West African cuisine and ingredients to a predominantly white UK audience mm. and having to tread a really difficult tightrope between expressing what is inherently um, considered traditional in air quotes and then bringing myself and my experience of food to it without, for want of better language, bastardizing it. Do you know what I mean? So there's there's so many multi-layers within all of this and it's like embracing the culture, sharing the culture without diluting it too much. But certainly, whatever way we look at it, if there's an expression of our culture, diasporic culture, whether it's African or otherwise, it should be us us to represent it whether we do it badly or not do you know what i mean i just want to ask i want melissa to weigh in on this because i think it's important about this sense of uh, identity loss you know is the fact that we've we've all managed to assimilate so well affecting how our culture is disseminated i i almost from my experience and obviously i can only speak from my experience and and, and people i speak to my friends I, I i kind of think with our families especially the first generation the first people to kind of to to arrive um in this country i think there was a kind of a very like a real push to assimilate and you know and obviously there would have been things that were instinctive like in terms of food um cooking food from from the country of origin um but then in terms of other things kind of the the drive to assimilate i think almost pushed 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 out those traditional kind of cultural aspects some of them um and then i think for um say second generation um i'm second generation i I'm almost hung more more hungry in a way for for those cultural aspects, and so I've sought them out, and and so like my, my dad would cook a lot of Jamaican food as we were growing up, um, and then when I, I and I kind of obviously like, I love food, I love cooking, and then when I um, was in my early twenties and I started to have people around um, for dinner, what a classic thing I would cook because it, like you know uh, because of the the spaces that I that where I lived, a lot of my friends were white, and so I would cook food like my favourite was a big pot of uh, curry goat, right, and. Um, and and for me that was really it was, it was really special. Even growing up, I was I was aware with certain dishes, or there became a realization that I knew that what I was eating wasn't what my friends were eating, and and that was really special for me. Some people speak about almost like a shame, and they don't want they, they don't want that. They don't want to be associated with these things. But I remember eating things like ackee and saltfish. Like I, I couldn't get enough of ackee and saltfish, but obviously the ingredients for it are quite, are quite expensive in this country, so it was always always limited to how much ackee and saltfish one tin of ackee five pound tin of ackee can can produce you can make as many dumplings as you like but the ratios have to be right and obviously and the salt fish as well um and so and i, and I just loved it and it was just it was really special for me so I, and and for me as i become more you know I, I want to celebrate my roots and i want to explore my roots and, and i've got a hunger and that's like it, it's always been really important to me i mean my daughter 
is, um, you know, she's kind of in, in appearance, she's very light skinned, um, but she loves planting. Like planting is her most favorite thing. And she's like, yeah, planting. She's four and a half. And, um, and there are other things that she, she loves, like she loves patties and stuff like that because, and, and I think a massive thing is just getting kids involved in the cooking of it. Because I remember once I made kedgeree for my daughter when she was maybe like about two and a half. And, um, and because she was helping me make it, helping in air quotes um then she ate it and i was like if i just presented her with this dish of kedgeri and she didn't know where like how it had been made there was no way that she would have eaten it but having that involvement and kind of telling that story i mean my da- my daughter identifies as jamaican and um like if you ask her where she's from she's jamaican and if you say actually you were born in london she's like she gets a bit upset she's like no i am jamaican she's got these little like jamaican sliders like she loves it and so i think um you know, I think for, for for her, like I'm quite keen to kind of really promote that. And she's also got Maltese, she's got Irish and she's got Welsh in her as well. Kind of, but it's, I mean, it's Jamaican that kind of takes precedence. I mean, Nadine White wrote in uh, Black British Lives Matter, which is a wonderful book, which is available in all bookshops now, uh, curated by Lenny Henry and Marcus Ryder. But in this book, uh, she wrote an essay called Black British Health Matters. And um, she talks about her complicated relationship to traditionally black food. She loves it but also acknowledges that it is not the most healthy of foods. And what would you say to Nadine? Can we celebrate black food and still live healthy lives? Because some of this food you should just strap to your hips, right? Some of this food is is deep fried. It's starchy. It's got a lot of salt in it, but oh my God, it's good. Let's ask Melissa first. Okay, good, because I've got a lot to say about this, Lenny. Like, I, I think um, there's a, a perception. I think people have maybe been, like, almost brainwashed by this idea that everyone talks about a Mediterranean diet, for instance, being the, the healthiest diet in the world. And and so many countries in Africa um, and in, in the Caribbean are, are really veg-forward, right? And they, they have diets with that are kind of really varied and, and just... Incredible, like loads of different vegetables, and I think there is, you know, there is an an, an element of of what you're saying where, where, you know, in I mean, for instance, in Jamaican food, there are a lot of fried dishes, but like fried fish, um, you've got fried chicken um, mm. and, and things like that. Obviously, fried dumpling, but that's not all there is to the to these cuisines. So you've got this massive like Ital tradition, for instance. You have a lot of um, a lot of protein from from beans and from peas and from legumes um loads of like vegetables and yeah like hard food and things that they're going to be quite an energy dense and i think a lot of those foods are, are rooted when people were working outside a lot and and working you know and, and doing a lot of physical labor um uh. but i think it's all about balance and it's like you know i i wrote about fried chicken and fried chicken in the american south and, and edna lewis um who who grew up um in a in freetown which was established by her grandfather who was um a, a, a who was formerly enslaved and, and and set up this free town after emancipation. And she wrote about fried chicken and she was like, you know, we didn't eat fried chicken every day. It was a seasonal dish cooked in spring when the when the chickens were at their best. And yeah, the chicken was cooked in in in, in lard, but it was almost something that was kind of really savoured. And now because we've got fried yeah, we've got chicken chops on on every street corner there's almost this assumption that that's all people that's all black people eat and it's just um i think it's really dangerous and i think a lot of the narrative it, it, like, that's it such just... a good point sorry sorry minister to interrupt you <clears throat> because when i go to the caribbean i see lots of fish i see fish and vegetables and the street food is dumpling and jerk but actually if you go to a restaurant they're always trying to sell you snapper or you know different types of fish tilapia and fresh and really fresh and um, nice vegetables, not all fried, 
um, but nicely prepared, sautéed and stuff. Um, there is a tendency to equate diaspora food with comfort and with sticking to the ribs, but actually there is a real sense from what I can see of there's one story for one side and there's another story for our side. And our side is, you know, the food that was used to enslave us actually saved us. Of course, you know, we had carb-heavy food because we had to work very hard. Of course, we had stick-to-your-ribs food because we might only eat once a day. But it's it's the kind of conti- the continuance of that cuisine into 21st century life when we do have problems with obesity and with, with sugar and with salt um, tolerance that we have to be careful about what we're putting into our systems, particularly with so many of us, and I include myself in this, um, having diabetes issues. But I think it's perfectly um, okay to eat the food. I grew up on that food. And if you see pictures of me when I was 14, 15, 16, I was like, I was strong. I was like a rake. And I think it's only when I could have a lot of it <laughs> that suddenly I started to put weight on. <laughs> My mom was very clever. Eat this. And you could have seconds, but you couldn't have thirds. I guess it's a matter of control and taste and and diet editing, you know? Yeah. I'll, I'll just say this quickly. I think I think it's about how it's presented and a lot of our food, people latch on to certain dishes, right? And 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 they think they're they, they know um they they know what, what people people eat, whether this is jerk or jollof and or suya, these kind of things that have kind of reached prominence and people, you know, uh, like people think that's the kind of beginning and end of the cuisine. There there is so much more that people I I guess choose you know, it's sort of in this country to to ignore about these these beautiful cuisines, um, and and I think it's important. I think a lot of us are working quite hard to kind of change that perception. I was just going to add that don't forget, you know, one of the lies the devil of white capitalism <laughs> does is it it steals our food and our food ways and it repackages it back to us as um, a less healthy, good version of it, and tells us this is what we eat, you know. And specifically talking about fried chicken, like the number of TV production companies that have tried to get me to go to a country in Africa to talk about the origins of fried chicken. No, I'm sorry, it ain't happening, babes. So I'm going to ask you, Zoe, um, before we all have to go, what are the developments in black cuisine happening at the moment in the 21st century? And are there any chefs I should be looking out for? Absolutely, there's so many. Um, In London, you should go check out Chizuru. I think Melissa just mentioned that in Brixton. You should check out a cocoa. You should check out um, kiln. You should check out a has got a new thing opening. Tatale's opening at the Africa Centre in July. You should check that out. Um, but also go and give some love to your mum and pop shops. You know, go to like to the eight 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 to the the places in your local communities where. Um, you know, the the small places, the independents. Well, they do that proper, proper grind. I've never got anything left. <laughs> but yeah, as far as Whenever chefs... Whenever I go to these places, they've never got anything left. It's it's you have good. any soup? No. You have any stew? No. You have any chicken? No. You have any squid? No. You have any dumpling? No. I oh, know. It's crazy. because it's, it's good. That's why you need to go it's there. It's because they're good. Exactly. So check out your mom and pop stores. Now, Zoe, mm-hmm. it's been lovely to talk to you. And um, let's try and connect again soon because i think this conversation could go on and on all right marcos we have finished that podcast the guests have left 
I'm starving after talking about food for that long, but we should do a, a quick debrief. Any thoughts? Lenny, food is so much more important and complicated than I realised. It literally holds our culture and it shapes it. I'm so glad we recorded that episode. It was kind of deep, wasn't it? I love talking about the food that almost defines who we are. And I love the way we had Zoe with her Ghanaian heritage and Melissa with her Caribbean heritage. Uh, I love the fact that they spoke a common language of food. It goes to the heart of what unifies and the differences in Black British culture. I loved it. There's just one thing. At the start, we said we would finally settle the argument as to whether Nigerian jollof is better than Ghanaian jollof rice and whether jerk, chicken or roti is better carnival food. And we didn't even go there. And for good reason. I was too scared. I don't want to get death threats from disgruntled podcast listeners. We're trying to unify the black British community, not start World War Three. Now, let's move on rapidly and tell them what we will be talking about in the next podcast episode. Guan, Lenny, next week we'll be looking at Black Disabled People's Lives Matter. It's going to be a goodie. Sounds good. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.